Welcome to Parcast Crime Bites. We wanted to give our listeners some additional content to help them dive even deeper into the true crime world. Every week, in addition to your normal female criminals episode, we're exploring the most fascinating true crime themes covered across the Parcast network. We've collected short clips from some of our most popular Parcast originals to help us explore ideas like motivation, method, and madness, and show how interconnected the true crime world really is. You can find these original episodes for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A list of episodes that we used will be posted in the episode description. Today, we're discussing cases in which a criminal tortured their victim. What would compel someone to torture another person? And what are the lasting effects on a victim who was tortured? The most heinous torturers are known as sexual sadists, people who derive sexual pleasure from the suffering they cause. According to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, full-blown sexual sadism is a psychological phenomenon that evolves over time. Developing sexual sadists first form control-based fantasies focused on domination through the infliction of pain. Over time, the sadist longs to turn their fantasy into reality. Eventually, their desire to harm another person overwhelms them, and the sadist enacts their violence against a human being. Like many crimes, torture can have lasting effects on a victim. Neuroscientist Bruce McEwen says that the chronic stress that comes from being repeatedly tortured can alter the brain forever. Victims can suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety disorders, and depression. Torture can even affect a person's memory, which sometimes makes investigating a torture crime difficult for law enforcement. In today's clips, we'll hear about three different cases of torture and the victims who endured throughout. We'll begin with a clip from Female Criminals, covering the gruesome torture and murder of Sylvia Likens. In the summer of 1965, Sylvia and her sister were sent to live with a caretaker named Gertrude Banaszewski. Sylvia's father had promised a stipend to Gertrude for caring for the children. But when the check stopped coming, Sylvia got the brunt of Gertrude's rage. To make matters worse, Gertrude also envied Sylvia. In Gertrude's eyes, Sylvia was everything she wished she could be, young, beautiful, and popular. For months, Sylvia was tortured by Gertrude. Eventually, her children and the neighborhood children joined in on the abuse. At one point in September, Gertrude told Stephanie's friend, Anna Sisko, 13, that Sylvia was spreading rumors about Anna's mother. Anna attacked Sylvia in retaliation, kicking and slapping her. Some of their other friends went to break things up, but Gertrude stopped them, telling them to let the two fight their own fight. Sylvia didn't really fight back though, even when Anna kicked her in the stomach. This turned into a pattern. Gertrude would spread a rumor that Sylvia had insulted one of the other kids and they would retaliate. Paula, Stephanie, and their friend Judy Duke, 12, all believed the lies Gertrude told them and took their anger out on Sylvia. Hitting Sylvia in the head or throwing things at her like dishes, bottles, or hairspray cans became a game, almost routine. Gertrude and Paula led the charge. Gertrude would punch Sylvia repeatedly, but the girl didn't dare fight back. The abuse escalated by the end of September. As many as 10 children at a time would gang up 
beating, kicking, or flipping Sylvia. Johnny Banaszewski and his friend Randy Lepper, 12, would take turns punching her in the face. Sometimes Sylvia would have lit matches flicked at her. All of these activities were considered by the kids to be games. Sylvia might have thought so too. At the trial, the attorneys and the press attributed the children's behavior to mob psychology. Mob, or crowd psychology, is a branch of social psychology where several theories have been developed to explain how the behavior of crowds differs from that of individuals. Crowds can be passive, like audiences, or active, like mobs. One type of active mob is the aggressive mob, which is often violent and outwardly focused. A theory held by French psychologist Gustave Le Bon suggests that crowds exist in stages. Two of these stages are submergence and contagion. During submergence, people in the crowd lose their sense of individual self and personal responsibility. Contagion refers to how individuals in the crowd unquestioningly follow the predominant ideas and emotions of the crowd. Mob psychology could explain how the older Banaszewski children, Paula, Johnny, and Stephanie, as well as Coy Hubbard, Randy Lepper, Judy Duke, Anna Sisko, and Mike Monroe, who was 11, participated in such casually brutal acts against Sylvia, either on orders from Gertrude or on their own. According to John Dean, a reporter who covered the 1966 trial and subsequently wrote the book House of Evil, the Indiana Torture Slaying, Gertrude was a, quote, psychologically passive woman among her peers, but she had a way with children, an evil way. For whatever motive, she was able to mobilize children's play energy to serve her own dark purposes with Sylvia Likens, end quote. In that clip from Female Criminals, Gertrude Banaszewski, her children, and children from the neighborhood repeatedly tortured Sylvia Likens. Finally, on October 26, 1965, Sylvia died from her injuries. Gertrude, her children Paula and John, and neighborhood children Richard Hobbs and Coy Hubbard were all tried for participating in Sylvia's murder. Gertrude and Paula Banaszewski were sentenced to life imprisonment, and Richard Hobbs, Coy Hubbard, and John Banaszewski Jr. each received sentences of 2 to 21 years. To this day, there is debate over the motives of the children who tortured Sylvia. Perhaps they participated due to mob psychology. Perhaps they enjoyed the torment they inflicted. Or perhaps they were so afraid of Gertrude, they simply wished to avoid her wrath. Of course, while their motivations were complex and unknown, sometimes a torturer's motives are all too clear. What happens when someone tortures their victim for the thrill alone? Coming up, the horrifying torture tactics of the toolbox killer, David Parker Ray. Now back to the show. Murder is a horrific crime, but when it's accompanied by torture, it becomes especially heinous. In fact, torturous murders are so brutal, United States law includes torture as something that makes a criminal eligible for the death penalty. Our next clip from Serial Killers highlights a killer who made torture a game. David Parker Ray created a soundproof trailer, which he called his toy box, complete with a collection of pulleys, saws, and surgical blades he used to torture 
is dozens of victims. The FBI agents she spoke to were stunned by what she had to say. She detailed her father's sexual appetite and run-ins with sex workers. She told them all about his extensive collection of sex toys and homemade torture devices. Then she delivered a bombshell. Her father had a penchant for abducting young women, torturing them, and either killing them or selling them into sexual slavery down south in Mexico. Her accusations were fairly general in their scope, as she couldn't name any of his specific victims, but they were shocking enough to get the FBI interested. The agents thanked Jesse for her statements, and the FBI immediately began an investigation into David Parker Ray's activities. We don't know much about the specifics of the investigation. However, we know they searched for some of his alleged victims, but could find no trace of them. We also know that they brought David in for questioning on multiple occasions. Strangely, when David was brought in to talk, he was startlingly forward about his personal life. He was very cooperative and told agents all about his sexual fetishes. He spoke fondly of his love for BDSM and told them he was part of the underground kink community in Phoenix. He even told them that he sold some of his personally created torture devices in BDSM magazines. David showed the investigators the ads he had placed and led them to the P.O. box where he received and shipped orders out of Elephant Butte Lake. Perhaps most surprisingly, David was uncomfortably open about the overwhelming nature of his sexual urges. He said that ever since he was 13, he had been obsessed with bondage culture and, more disturbingly, sadism. He could go months at a time living life normally, but then his sexual fixations would kick in and he would become obsessive. He would spend weeks of his time, quote, fantasizing about everything imaginable, including killing women, in order to ejaculate. David even told the FBI investigators that he thought he was, quote, potentially dangerous. Without ever confessing to any specific crimes, David had effectively told the FBI almost everything about his inner mental life. We don't know if the FBI ever tapped David's phones or searched his home. We do know that the investigation lasted for an entire year, from June of 1986 to the summer of 1987. Yet FBI investigators failed to find any concrete evidence of criminal wrongdoing on David's part. Because Jesse had been either unable or unwilling to provide any specific details about the victims, the FBI was left with general accusations and no hard evidence. David's strange willingness to cooperate with the investigation, meanwhile, could be interpreted two different ways. At the time, the investigators believed that his statements were simply the ramblings of a very unusual but innocent man. However, in hindsight, we know that he was an incredibly confident killer who knew that he had not left behind any evidence the FBI could find. In that clip from Serial Killers, David Parker Ray detailed the fantasies that he acted out on his victims. While Ray was never convicted of any murders, it's suspected that he tortured upwards of 60 women, many of whom have not been identified and were likely murdered. After his final victim, Cynthia Vigil, escaped and went to the police, two more women came forward to tell their story of surviving Ray's toy box. 
In 2001, Ray was sentenced to 224 years in prison. Like David Parker Ray, the criminal in our next clip was a sexual sadist who also kept his victim in a box and derived pleasure from torturing her. Our last clip is from ParCast original Hostage and covers the kidnapping and torture of Colleen Stan. In 1977, Colleen was a 20-year-old looking for a ride to her friend's birthday party. When Cameron Hooker stopped to pick her up, Colleen felt confident accepting a ride because Cameron's wife, Janice, and their baby were also in the car. But they were bait. Cameron abducted Colleen and threw her in a wooden box. He kept the box beneath his bed and locked Colleen within it for 23 hours a day, only letting her out to sexually assault and torture her. This continued for eight months until Colleen signed a contract agreeing to be a slave to Cameron. He had convinced her that if she didn't sign the contract, a fictional group called The Company would find her family and kill them. One wonders, as the Hooker children grew, if they ever thought about the babysitter who used to play with them. They had no idea that from 1981 to 1984, that woman was right upstairs, trapped in a small box beneath their parents' bed. After allowing Colleen a weekend with her family in March 1981, Cameron got spooked. He shoved Colleen into the box beneath his bed and never gave her free reign of the house again. And even more horrifically, his violent fantasies escalated. He dreamed up even more perverted ways of torturing Colleen. And unfortunately for her, Cameron was a skilled woodworker, more than capable of making these fantasies a reality. Hooker built a contraption he dubbed the stretcher. It worked like a medieval torture device. He tied Colleen to two heavy boards and turned a winch. Stretching the board apart, he would watch with pleasure as Colleen's entire body tightened and she screamed in agony. He would keep her on the stretcher as long as she could stand, choking her and watching her writhe. Then he'd lock her in the box until it was time for another session. One day in 1982, while Cameron was at work and Janice was away, Colleen broke. She flew into a fit of rage. It had been almost two years since she'd last been allowed out of her box. She began screaming, kicking, and flailing against the wood box. She railed on it as hard as she could. Suddenly, the foot of the box collapsed. Colleen was stunned. She had kicked it open. She went to get up to flee this wretched house that had filled her nightmares for six years. But she stopped. The company was watching. When Cameron returned, Colleen expected to be whipped for damaging the box. But he simply began repairing the door. In fact, he seemed proud. She had the chance to escape, but out of fear she had stayed. It was what Cameron had always dreamed of. With a thin-lipped smile, he tucked Colleen back in the box for safekeeping. Dr. Amy Baker, a psychologist at Columbia University, has written that victims of abduction tend to internalize physical restraints to such an extent that the victim becomes psychologically dependent on their abuser. 
The abuser looms so large in the victim's mind, they cannot imagine ever breaking free. With the help of the imaginary company, Cameron had become such a beast. Colleen could no longer imagine a world without him looming in the shadows, waiting for a moment to recapture her. Following that clip from Hostage, Colleen regained some freedoms and was allowed out of the box to work as a maid in a motel. When Cameron announced he would make Colleen his second wife, Janice became so upset that she secretly confessed to Colleen that she too had been brainwashed and tortured by Cameron, and the company did not exist. Janice drove Colleen to a bus station and escaped with her two daughters. Janice reported Cameron to the police, and after getting immunity for her testimony, sent Cameron to prison for 104 years. Our subjects today displayed some of the most horrific torture methods known to man. In both serial killers and hostage, David Parker Ray and Cameron Hooker created torture chambers to house their victims. In female criminals, Gertrude created a living hell in her own home, purely to terrorize a teenager whom she envied. We also saw that these criminals enjoyed the torture they instilled on their victims. David Parker Ray was a sexual sadist with antisocial personality disorder, which is characterized by a lack of empathy and violation of the rights of others. While no diagnosis is available for Cameron Hooker, he was likely a sexual sadist, similar to David Parker Ray. Gertrude Banaszewski also enjoyed the suffering she inflicted upon Sylvia Likens, up until the moment Sylvia died from her torment. Sadly, Sylvia Likens lost her life. But Colleen Stan and several of David Parker Ray's victims escaped the unimaginable torture to live a life of freedom once again. Even in the darkest circumstances, there is always the hope of finding something better. Thanks for tuning into Parcast Crime Bites. We hope you enjoyed this episode on torture. We'll be back next week with a new episode on crimes with a political motive. If you'd like to listen to the episodes we discussed today in full, simply search for our ParCast original shows, Serial Killers, Hostage, or Female Criminals on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time.